week's reading of the Business Record. Our thanks to the folks uh, at Business Record for making this possible for us. I'm Pat Steele. All material heard on IRIS is intended for the use of listeners with a print disability. And here's our first story from the January 26th edition of the Business Record. Iowa Public Broadcasting announces its new executive director and general manager. Following a months-long search for the Iowa Public, the following a months-long process, the Iowa Public Broadcasting Board unanimously voted to appoint Andrew Bart the next executive director and general manager of Iowa PBS. Bart, who has served as director of production and programming at Iowa PBS since 2022, brings nearly 20 years of experience in programming development throughout the PBS system. In his new role, Bart, uh, bad, I'm sorry, will oversee all network activities and report to the governor on the organization's activities. The outgoing director, Molly Phillips, is set to begin her planned retirement on January 31st with Bat assuming uh, his new role on February 2nd. SPPG rebrands to Horizon Group. Market Research Company State Public Policy Group announced it is rebranded to Horizon Group. The new name reflects the organization's commitment to guiding clients through their entire journey, akin to the cycle of sunrise and sunset along the horizon, according to the release. The company leads coalitions such as Capital Crossroads and works with partners like the Greater Des Moines Partnership and Community Foundation of Greater Des Moines. Founded in, 18, and I'm sorry, founded in 1984 with a focus on public policy, Horizon Group expanded its market research capabilities by acquiring Esmond Research in 2017. President and owner Jackie Norris bought the company in 2020. Deloitte CFO of the Year uh, for 2024 goes to Aaron Cool. In August 2023, Krauss Group finalized its sale of Come and Go and Solar Transport to Maverick, making the Utah-based group the 12th largest convenience store in the United States. One of the key figures getting that transaction across the finish line was Aaron Cool, the 2024 Deloitte Chief Financial Officer of the Year. The award honors an often unsung individual who demonstrates outstanding performance in his, her, or their role as corporate financial steward. Cool first joined Come and Go in April 2019 as CFO before taking on the same position with Krauss Group in June 2021. In April 2023, she added Chief of Staff to her title, a position as 90% duties as assigned, she said. In addition to playing a key role in the transaction, Cool said one of the achievements that gives her the most pride is nurturing and developing great teams. Cool said, one of the things I think is really important is getting to know people, not just getting to know them as people, but what are their skills, what they're good at, and putting them in situations and assigning them work, roles, and responsibilities that match up what they're good at. Two people can be great at accounting or financial modeling, but their personalities and the way they work and what motivates them can make one of them better for one situation over another. So I think it's kind of this right person, right seat, putting everyone in a position where their impact can be maximized is how I build that team aspect of it. She continued, I'm a firm believer that when people are in those situations, when they're in situations so they can make a bigger impact, that drives the success of the team as a whole and creates a great chemistry among a group of people. Cool, who was originally from Las Vegas, moved to Des Moines in 2010 after spending the previous six years at PwC in Chicago. She worked as the manager of accounting policy and transition support for Aviva for three years before becoming director of financial reporting and later vice president and controller at Athene, which uh, bought Aviva in 2013. During her 13 years working in Des Moines, Cool has been invested in the community, currently as a board member of the Finance and Executive Committees for Oak Ridge Neighborhood, as a board member of the Executive Committee for Mercy One Des Moines Foundation, and in various positions with United Way of Central Iowa. Past community engagement includes roles with Big Brothers Big Sisters of Central Iowa, the Greater Des Moines Leadership Institute, Winefest Des Moines, and DSM Financial Executive Women. Cool was also recognized in the business record 40 under 40 class of 2020. 
Shannon Cofield, president of the Mercy One Des Moines Foundation Board, said in a letter recommending Cool for the award, Erin is synonymous with action. No matter the issue at hand, she provides sound advice and actionable solutions. Each encounters her with each encounter with her is enlightening and joyful. She is not only a tremendous CFO with years of financial experience, she is truly an inspiring and dedicated professional who is very deserving of this honor. The business record recently sat down with Cole to learn more about her career, the role she had in the come and go sale, and her leadership style. The responses have been edited for clarity in briefing. So the first question posed was, you grew up in Las Vegas and your first job out of college was in Chicago. So how did you wind up in Des Moines? Her response, I moved to Des Moines on a little bit of a trial basis. My husband is from Des Moines. We moved here and noticeably, uh, and not really sure if we would like, would like it. He didn't really want to move back necessarily, but we came back and haven't left. Here we are 13 years later. What are your favorite aspects about living in Des Moines? I think Des Moines is a great community for a lot of reasons. I always tell people that when they ask me how I like it in Des Moines, I always say it's a really easy place to live with wonderful people. There's good food, good people, and good entertainment. There's no traffic, which is great, at least compared to Chicago or any other big cities. I found it a great place to raise my children. I think it's a great community. I try to get involved in any way that I can because I think that's a great way to get to know people and build your network. Next question, why is community involvement so meaningful to you? I think it's really interesting how a lot of people take their skills and their talents, whether they're innate as a person or their professional skills, for granted. And you just kind of underestimate just how helpful they can be to a nonprofit or an organization who maybe doesn't have someone on the staff who has those skills. For me, with my financial knowledge and skills, I can look at financial statements and right away just know, oh yeah. Here are 10 observations, or have you thought about this? It takes 20 minutes, and it's so helpful to them, and I think that motivates me to give back or just realize that it's not about doing something that's going out of your way or a burden. Anyone out there, whatever your skill is, it could be beneficial. You can give it in a way that is so appreciated. It's so easy. It comes so naturally, whatever that thing is for any person. That's your skill, and you don't think of it as work, or you don't think of it as hard. And for a lot of nonprofits, they don't have those skill sets on staff. And it makes such a difference, even 30 minutes an hour. I think that's been something I learned earlier on in my career and in just my time of service is that it feels great to be able to help them. And then also, is the skill to raise money, ask people for money. I think as you work in nonprofits and have been part of a number of different capital campaigns, fundraising campaigns, I chaired the Tocqueville Society campaign this year. So once you get that skill figured out, how to ask people for money, that's also clearly very helpful for nonprofits. It's scary when you don't know how to do it or when you're uncomfortable with it. Once you kind of get that mastered a little bit, you can add so much value to an organization and it's not that hard. You said you originally weren't considering leaving Athene, so why did you feel the CEO opening at Come and Go was such a good fit? Her response, I appreciated the way the Krauss family led the organization through their own values as people, how that translated into the organization's values. I think a lot of companies have values, and I think at Krauss Group, those come to life in a really meaningful way through what we do and how we work together. I just really enjoyed that about meeting them. As I continued those conversations when I wasn't really actively looking, it felt like people that I could work with really well. Everyone gets to choose where they drive the car every day to work, and when I thought about the possibility of being here, it felt good. I could see that being a really good fit for me, and me being very motivated not just for the job but for the organization and to work with Kyle and Tanner coming into the organization, it was an interesting time. Things come when you least expect it. And this was one of them. Are there any other accomplishments, either individually or an organization, that you're especially been proud of? Her response, I think the come and go transaction we did in 2023 is a huge accomplishment. It will likely be the largest transaction I ever do in my career. I think it's one of the bigger transactions that will happen in Des Moines, in Iowa. It's hard to not call that an accomplishment, but that's not my accomplishment. It was all of us. I played a significant role in the transaction, but ultimately it was Kyle, 
Krauss's transaction and the Krauss group's transaction. My personalities may be less inclined to point to transaction type accomplishments. I lean more toward that people stuff. Will you share about the role you had in the sale? Well, I was kind of the key point person running the deal. I worked with our investment bankers, prepared transaction documents, sale documents, and marketing documents. I ran point on some of the management meeting preparation. I was really kind of involved in all pieces from the beginning until the end of really selecting our team, our external advisors, and who we would be working with preparing those marketing materials and launching the deal, working with diligence with different counterparties who we work with along the way as potential buyers for come and go in solar transport. Once we got to announce the deal in April of 2023, the bulk of my work was all kind of culminating up until that. And then once it was kind of out in the public, then you have every person in the company to help you. And so a lot of the work went out further after that. It was clearly something that was kept very tight with a small group of people. It was clearly a privilege with the Krauss family to be able to play the role that I did in helping Kyle get that across the finish line. You mentioned opportunities like those don't come around very often. So how were you able to prepare yourself to take on that role and what did you learn from it? There's really no preparing yourself. It's a significant amount of work and there's no training or preparation that you could probably have for that. In terms of what I learned, just being able to have a front row seat to a transaction through every stage. I played a role in other transactions in the past where I was involved in a portion of it. So I think just knowledge of the end-to-end transaction process as a whole, there's probably an endless number of things that I learned. At the end of the day, the other big lesson is it takes a lot of work for a lot of people to get something like that done. You have to work together as a team make difficult decisions, challenging decisions. If I had to boil it down to one thing, I think the importance of clear, regular communication. You got to keep everyone informed, being the hub or the main coordinator kind of point person. Just constantly making sure that the right people have the right information. I was keeping Kyle in the loop. When a decision needed to be made, just make sure that the right person had it. I think just regular, clear communication makes everything go smoother So that was really a very, very important part of my job through the entire transaction. What kind of effects does the sale had now on the Krauss Group? The obvious one that everyone knows is come and go and solar are now owned by Maverick, which also means that they've moved out of the Krauss Gateway Center. It also means Krauss Group has two fewer companies in its portfolio and now will move to a stage of deploying capital into new investments. Krauss Group has really entered a very new era of its existence and will continue to grow and expand, but in a very different way than we were a year ago. Now that you've become Chief of Staff, how has your work changed since stepping into that role? I do a lot less of the finance day-to-day. I have a great team of finance folks here in the business who have taken on some more responsibilities and stepped up in their different areas. I think as a member of our senior team, I'm never out of finance things. It's kind of a role of the senior team as a whole, but less time on a day-to-day finance move time. I'd say managing our strategic priorities more broadly, a lot more time keeping everything moving smoothly. What roadblocks need removed? What problems need solved? What decisions need made? Keeping things kind of moving forward, and that's very cross-functional. I worked largely in finance previously, but then also as a member of our senior team, you naturally have more broader cross-functional conversations and discussions. I would say I've shifted much more into those cross-functional, really across all aspects of the business, our existing businesses, potential new investments. Again, we still have some remaining transaction stuff with Maverick that is through the transitional service agreement period, which is normal as we still are kind of trying to decouple from each other. There's really probably not much that my role doesn't touch now. It's pretty broad. It's other duties as assigned. It's mostly 90% that. What needs done to keep things moving forward, to keep us focused on our priorities, and to keep things moving smoothly. There are so many different ways that chief of staff job exists. If you Google chief of staff, you get a ton of different job descriptions, and there are no two chief of staff jobs that are the same or alike. It's been a fun opportunity to kind of take all the skills that I had and everything I've learned into a new, broader impact area for me.
What does receiving the Deloitte CFO of the Year Award mean to you? Any recognition like that is great to get. It's great that it aligns with a year with a massive transaction that I was involved in, too. It was a significant year for me professionally as a whole between all aspects of the transaction. And just to have this recognition after such a significant professional year is an honor. And again, that was a story written by Kyle Heim of the Business Record in honoring the Deloitte CFO of the year uh, for 2024, an award uh, created by the uh, Business Record. And Aaron Cool is that winner. Three new members have been added to the DMAC, Des Moines Area Community College Foundation Board. And they are Mary Chapman, Ashley Viriger, and Todd Wishman. And they joined the Foundation Board of Directors, according to an announcement the community college announced this week. Chapman joined DMAC in 1990 and held several roles until her retirement in 2013. Virager is Senior Lead Advisor at Foster Group, and Wishman is the Executive Vice President at Bankers Trust. The DMAC Foundation primarily raises funds to support students and awards more than $2 million annually for student scholarships, faculty, and other program enhancements. The Iowa Economic Development Authority Board okays $550,000 to six startup Iowa-based companies. The Iowa Economic Development Authority Board has approved a total of $550,000 in state innovation funding to six Iowa-based startup companies. The board voted unanimously to approve the awards based on the recommendations of its Technology Commercialization Committee during its January 19th meeting. According to a news release, the emerging businesses are headquartered in Ames, Cedar Falls, Des Moines, Fairfield, Iowa City, and North Liberty. And those companies are First Insear Incorporated, an Iowa City headquartered artificial intelligence firm that was given $250,000 loan from the state's Innovation Acceleration Launch Fund. According to a report in the IEDA board packet, the loan to INSEER has a five-year term with a six-month deferral and will be repaid at 3% interest rate. The company leverages a proprietary AI computer vision system to enhance workplace safety, improve ergonomics, and boost productivity in manufacturing environments, according to a news release. The second company was Spanton Board Incorporated, a medtech startup based in Fairfield, it was awarded a $100,000 loan from the state's demonstration fund. The IEDA report says that Spranton will repay the loan at 1.33 times the award amount at a royalty rate of 3% of its total gross revenue. According to a news release, Spanton created the first patent-pending power-driven spine board to effectively safeguard athletes following a serious injury. The company plans to expand from the professional sports market to military and emergency medical services. Next company was Rise Energy, based in Ames. It was awarded a $50,000 proof of commercial relevance loan to develop and evaluate intellectual property, conduct a market and competition analysis and planning. According to release, Rise Energy is commercializing a modular system that can deploy technology for industrial processors to generate value by converting its existing biomass feedstocks into renewable fuels, chemicals, and products. The modules provide a convenient solution for using biomass to create up, uh, upgradable liquids, which can be used in the production of sustainable aviation fuels, renewable fuels, asphalt binders, and other products, and biocular, which is used to sequester carbon, according to a release. The company will repay the interest-free loan at a percent uh, royalty rate of its total gross revenue, not including grant funds, according to the IEDA report. The next award went to PicklePlay and was awarded a $50,000 loan for its digital platform that offers a comprehensive pickleball resource. The software can help users find pickleball courts and events, engage with players and groups, and organize their play schedule according to the news release. The Cedar Falls-based Pickle Play will repay the interest-free loan at a 3% royalty rate of its total gross revenue, not including grant funds. 
Next was Tumbleweeds, which has developed technology to support end-of-life and post-loss planning software. It was awarded a 50000 loan, according to the release. It shows that the Des Moines-based company will repay the interest-free loan at 3% royalty rate of its total gross revenues. Tumbleweed software provides individuals, families, executors, and trustees with an affordable and time-efficient solution that helps users navigate the intricacies of end-of-life planning or following a death. And finally, the last company was Upstream. It's based in North Liberty and it launched remote source water monitoring technology. It was given a $50,000 loan. According to release, Upstream's platform, the Outfall small, small Sale, is a fully automated system able to withstand all environments for uninterrupted communication and data delivery for water quality detection. Uh, the Iowa Economic Development Authority report shows that the company will repay the interest-free loan at a 3% royalty rate of its total gross revenues, uh, not including grant funds. Elsewhere in this week of the business record, Mike Macri, a vice president in CBRE Incorporated's West Des Moines office, has been awarded the Counselor of Real Estate designation by the Counselors of Real Estate, according to the organization. The Counselors of Real Estate is an international group of high-profile real estate professionals who provide expert advisory services to clients on complex real estate, property, and land-related matters. The credential was awarded in January of 2024. Only 1,000 professionals in all disciplines of real estate hold the CRE. Um, um, sorry, hold the CRE credential in the United States and 20 other countries. Membership is selective and extended by invitation. Although commercial real estate practitioners with 10 years of proven experience may apply. Macri joined CBRE in September 2018, has more than 20 years of industry experience. He is responsible for nearly 2 million square feet of development projects and properties throughout Iowa and the Des Moines metropolitan area on behalf of various landlords and developers. He is also an adjunct professor of practice with Iowa State University's College of Designs Community and Regional Planning Department, where he teaches courses in real estate development for the Master of Real Estate development program. In addition to his work with CBRE, Macri maintains a consultative relationship with the cities of Ottumwa and Makokota, as well as with Jackson County Economic Development. And in real estate developments in the business record, Tasty Tacos, whose headquarters is in Pleasant Hill, paid Rack Billiards Club $1.8 million for property on Northwest 86th Street in Clive. The one-acre parcel includes a 5,774 square foot building constructed in 1975. The building houses the Rack Billiard Club. That transaction was recorded on January 18th. KKRLC, located in Des Moines, paid four, uh, paid four limited liability companies $1.7 million for property on North Ankeny Boulevard. The nearly one acre parcel includes a uh, an 11,370-square-foot strip mall built in 1990. Sellers were Wave Capital, Leo Investments, TJL Investments, and ATI Capital. The property is valued at $1.4 million. The transaction was recorded on January 16th. Stephen and Ellen Diedra Chesson paid Grand Oak Townhomes $1.49 million for property on Grand Avenue in Des Moines. That transaction was finalized on January 18th. The Richard Christensen Living Trust and Betty Christensen Living Trust, whose owners are located in Billings, Montana, paid Strifex $1.8 million for property on East 1st Street in Grimes. The one-acre parcel includes a 25,000-square-foot building constructed in 2021, the building is occupied by Arby's Fast Food Restaurant and is valued, the property is valued at $1.67 million. 216 East Court, located in Des Moines, paid Market One $1.6 million for property at 111 East 3rd Street in Des Moines. The semi-improved property is currently being used for surface parking. A representative of the property's buyer said it would continue to be used for parking 
and that property is valued at $370,000. In Dallas County, AP North, located in West Des Moines, paid HMA investment for semi-improvement land in Waukee, Dallas County real estate records show the 2.83-acre parcel is about one-fourth of a mile east of Grand Prairie Parkway and northeast of Southeast Esker Ridge Drive. That transaction was recorded on January 18th. Another real estate development, uh, DART, or Des Moines Area Regional Transit Authority, will buy more than 32 acres on Vandalia Road on the city's southeast side to build a new maintenance and operation facility, relocating its operations near downtown Des Moines when the project is complete. The DART Board of Commissioners took the next step in that plan Tuesday when it approved a purchase agreement for the property with the city of Des Moines. According to the agreement, DART will pay the city $3.91 million for the land, the agreement is awaiting approval by the Des Moines City Council, which is expected to be considered in March. Leaders of the transit agency said the relocation of their facilities, currently located off of Southwest 9th Street, is necessary to improve its long-term operation. Its current site is landlocked in an area of changing use and is in a flood plain, sitting just feet from a levee along the Laracoon River. DART's maintenance building has flooded several times over the years when the river rose out of its banks. Once industrial, the area around DART is now bordered by mixed-use development of condominiums and retail. Its leaders say that the inability to expand at its current location and being in a floodplain makes it unlikely DART would qualify for federal grants to improve the site, making the move critical for the agency to continue to meet the needs of the community. Amanda Wanke, DART CEO, said in advance of the commission's vote, it is the best use of taxpayer dollars and helps get our buildings in a place that is a better fit than we, might, than we are right now and helps ensure that we can provide future and sustainable service. When we're building a new building, we have to be looking at 50 years from now. As we look at how technologies are changing, we have to be able to build and be ready to adapt to a variety of new technologies. And there's not the infrastructure ability to do that here. Wanky said that the Federal Transit Administration also has said it won't put more money into the existing facility because of the challenges that the site presents. Wanky continued, most capital expenses are paid for by the federal government. and We want to have a facility that is funded as much as possible by the federal side of things and functions well for 50 years and has the lowest operating cost. Louis Montoya, the chief planning officer for DART, said the existing facility was built in the 1970s when buses were smaller and when the agency operated fewer of them. When the current facility was built, it was designed for 100 buses and support vehicles. Today's DART fleet stands at 168 buses and support vehicles. The current maintenance bays has 11 bays which are light or which are tight and don't provide adequate space for mechanics to work on buses. Employees need to repair and change tires outdoors, and the bus wash, similar to a car wash, is exposed to the outdoors and has to be shut down when the temperature drops below 20 degrees to prevent components from icing up, according to Montoya. The body shop is also too tight to get one of today's buses in for repairs, and bus panels have to be removed in order to be repaired, he said. There is also a lack of storage for parts and equipment. According to plans, a new maintenance garage would include 16, would include 16 bays and provide more space for crews to work. It would also move all repairs indoors and allow for the bus wash to continue operating in colder temperatures. In a new facility, it will be indoors, climate-controlled, and newer equipment, Montoya said, while giving the business record a tour of the facility on Monday. A new facility would also provide more in-house storage for tools, parts, and equipment, which currently are stored in various areas on the property. The garage where buses are stored is also too small for modern buses, forcing operators to get out and fold in mirrors to fit them through the garage doors. It also is being used as overflow storage for parts such as tires. The overall project will be done in three phases, with the first phase being the maintenance facility and storage. Montoya said, we're choosing to replace the maintenance building first because that's going to improve our working conditions. And then parts because maintenance and parts have to go together. 
we don't have enough space to keep these materials near to where they need to be used. So we have a need for a bigger building so that we can have it all in one place and we're operating more efficiently. That will cost an estimated $34.8 million, with $17.2 million coming from an FTA grant that was awarded in 2019. The remainder would come from a variety of other sources, including local matching funds and capital funding. The cost of renovating the building would be nearly double that at about $63 million, and operating the aging structure would only go up, Montoya said. The Vandalia Road site is southeast of the state fairgrounds in an area that will have access to the Southeast Connector Project when that is extended to U.S. Highway 65 bypass in the future. Improvements to 36th Street are also planned, said Montoya. The decision to relocate its facilities comes as DART continues to discuss funding challenges that could result in service cuts. Wanky said that the funding formulas are different for capital improvements and operations, and DART risks losing the 2019 grant if it doesn't make progress on the project because of deadlines tied to the grant. Most capital expenses are funded with 80% federal dollars and 20% local money. Funding for operations is flipped, with the vast majority of operations being funded locally, she said. So that's why these are two separate conversations. Even if we do have to reduce service, we know that as a region we're growing and we have to plan for 50 years. We know our local taxpayers expect us to be good stewards and the commission and us have looked at this. It's the right thing to do because we have federal money we risk losing if we don't move forward on this. We drive up our operating costs with the challenges of trying to maintain this facility because the federal government won't put money into it. DART first began exploring the option of relocating in 2017. The Board of Commissioners voted in September to move forward with Phase 1 of the project. Once the City Council approves the agreement, DART will issue requests for proposals this summer Construction of Phase 1 is scheduled to be complete in 2026. The second phase of the project is the bus storage building and operations and administration. The third phase will be additional storage. Wanky said the second and third phases, estimated to cost $40 million and $20 million respectively, will be done when funding is available. DART will apply for a federal bus and facilities grant in the next few months and will continue to explore other funding options for those phases. Wanky said that moving forward with the project that will be funded by the grant awarded in 2019 could increase DART's chances of securing other federal dollars for the project. We know that the FTA has been clear that making progress and showing local commitment to progress will hopefully be helpful to us. Montoya said it's difficult to speculate when that funding could be available to move forward with the other phases of the project. We're preparing ourselves that it could be years. That's why we're building this most needed piece first. We have a plan for how that will operate in the meantime. It will be an improvement. Just building phase one will be a huge improvement and we're setting ourselves up for success for later phases. DART Commissioner Chair Russ Trimble said during the meeting that there's no doubt that relocating and building new is the right decision. The more you see the old facility, the more discussions you have about being in a floodplain, having to take apart buses to be able to paint them, and all the issues we have. The FTA is saying they're not going to put any more funding toward this, he said. There's no doubt in my mind that this is the right way to go. And that was an article written by Michael Crum, who's a senior staff writer at the Business Record. You are listening to this week's edition of the Business Record. Our thanks again to the folks at Business Publication for providing a copy of the Business Record to Iris so that we can read it for you. If you have any comments on this or any other Iris program, please give us a call at 515-243-6833. Now back to more articles in this week of the Business Record. The Waukee Public Library has met the conditions for state accreditation, the State Library of Iowa announced. A news release said that 414 of Iowa's 543 public libraries are accredited. The recognition goes to libraries for community responsiveness and exhibiting excellence in the provision of library services, according to a news release. Accredited libraries receive additional funding through the State Library's Enrich Iowa program, as well as a certificate from Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. 
The percentage of vacant office space in the greater Des Moines area shrunk slightly between the first and fourth quarters of 2023, market reports from CBRE Incorporated and JLL show. The Des Moines area has over 21.7 million square feet of office space, according to CBRE, which has an office in West Des Moines. In 2023's first quarter, which ended March 31st, 17.2% 17.2% or 3.1 million square feet was vacant. In the fourth quarter, which ended on December 31st, 12.9% or 2.8 million square feet was vacant, according, according to a report. Part of the decline in vacant space is due to purchase of office buildings by the state of Iowa and city of Des Moines. The state purchased a two-story, 109 square foot office building for $18 million in September. The building will be occupied by the Department of Agriculture and Natural Resources. In December, the city of Des Moines finalized its purchase of the five-story 371,920 square foot office building at 1200 Locust Street. The city paid $30 million for the property. Additional vacant office space is expected to be occupied in 2024, according to a report by JLL, which has an office in downtown Des Moines. Iowa-based Fairway Grocery Store is relocating its headquarters from Boone to Johnston, where it bought an existing office building. Heartland Co-op is relocating its headquarters from lease space to an office building it acquired from Wells Fargo. Little new office construction is expected to occur in 2024, according to the JLL report. The construction pipeline has dried up with only a few suburban for lease projects being developed. Look for developers to find opportunities to develop additional suburban office projects. Next up is an article by Michael Crum. It's the city of Des Moines is seeking proposals to develop a less than half acre site across the street from City Hall. A request for proposal was announced in December with the February 1st deadline for developers to submit their proposals for the site at 401 Robert D. Ray Drive. City staff will select a proposal by February 15th to submit to the City Council for considerations. According to the RFP, the site is 17,100 square feet or about 0.39 acres, which is zoned DX2, which allows for mixed level intensity mixed use development. It also is within the capital dominance area, which limits the height of buildings to 75 feet so they won't obscure the view of the state capital. City staff have determined the estimated fair market value of the parcel will be between $1.075 million and $1.35 million. An independent commercial appraisal is being conducted and will be available once it's complete. The RFP notes that the site provides access to the downtown riverfront and its attractions. It is adjacent to the bridge district development, which includes 500 residential units when complete. It also is next to a 535 staff public parking garage. The city of Des Moines is seeking development teams with an interest in the creative redevelopment of city-owned site, according to the RFP. While not dictating the type of development, the city suggests some ideas in the RFP. First, a proposed project needs to be compatible with the surrounding East Village neighborhood and continue the growth of the area. The development also needs to be respectful of the Civic Center Historic District and the nearby Principal Riverwalk and Promenade. According to the RFP, it should also include a blueprint that allows for enhanced outdoor space for programming by tenants while allowing for greater views of City Hall. Cody Christensen, director of the City's Development Services Department, said while there are some requirements for the development, there also is flexibility to allow developers to show off their creativity. He said, City staff are anxious to see what is submitted as the site's primary location is sure to generate well-integrated, innovative proposals. Realtor Angela Vitek has earned the Certified Senior Housing Professional designation from the Seniors Real Estate Institute. Vitek joins Mary Eikenberry and Kelly Musgrove as one of three CSHP designated realtors in Iowa. To earn the designation, realtors take coursework on serving the needs of older adults 
making late-in-life transitions. Professionals such as Angela have a clear vision of how the real estate market is evolving, according to Nick Buccalo, founder of SREI. This expertise, combined with a passion to ensure the dignity of elderly clients, is not just a benefit to seniors and their families, it is a profound asset to the entire community. Drake uh, University has announced that Roscoe Jones Jr. will be the 22nd Dean of Drake Law School, effective July 1st. Before accepting the position, Jones was a partner at Gibson, Dunn, and Crutchers in Washington, D.C., and was recognized as one of Law Dragon's 500 leading lawyers in America in 2022. Jones is the first black dean of Drake Law School and the university's first black dean of any college or school, a news release said. The global impact of Dean Jones' advocacy and policy work on civil and human rights is extraordinary, and we are incredibly fortunate to have him join us as the next leader of Drake Law School. And that's a statement from Drake University Provost Sue Mattinson, and she uh, delivered those remarks through a prepared statement. The Community Foundation of Greater Des Moines has awarded $250,000 in leadership grants to support projects at Greater Des Moines Habitat for Humanity and Primary Health Care. Greater Des Moines Habitat for Humanity will use $100,000 grant to acquire 55 plots of land over the next three years that will ultimately serve 915 households. Primary Health Care will use a $150,000 grant to add 16 additional exam rooms at the University Medical Clinic located in Des Moines. Leadership grants are made possible by the Better Together Fund, which will be the focus of a two-part virtual discussion series hosted by the Community Foundation on Thursday and Friday. Habitat for Humanity will speak about their project and primary health care will be featured on the Friday session. The Iowa Renewable Fuels Association and the Iowa Corn Promotion Board will host a virtual press conference at 2.30 to discuss at 2.30 Wednesday to discuss the potential impact of ethanol to sustainable aviation fuel. The organizer, organizations will also discuss fuel producer Lanza Jet's new production facility in Georgia, the first of its kind in the United States. The meeting will be led by Dan Keitzer and Ryan Sauer, uh, both from Iowa Corn, and Monty Shaw from the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association, and David Miller of Decision Innovation solutions. And now in this uh, week's edition, the uh, January 26th edition of the Business Record, we go to an opinion column, and it's Albert Files, and it's a t- entitled Iowa's Lagging Economy. It's written by David Albert of the Business Record. Iowa's economy improved in 2023, but not as much as the rest of the country. Iowa's 2.1% increase in personal income during the third quarter, the most recent period for data, was the fifth worst in the country and significantly behind the 3.5% national gain. Similarly, annual growth of Iowa's gross domestic product typically ranks in the lower third of the 50 states, as it did again in the third quarter at 37th place. Iowa's ag-based economy is largely dependent on farm commodity prices. We do well when grain and livestock prices are high and vice versa. In addition to benefiting farmers, High commodity prices support Iowa's main durable goods manufacturers who make farm and construction equipment and are non-durable goods factories that process food, including grain and meat. Iowa's farm economy boomed for much of 2021 and 2022 after Russian troops invaded Ukraine and shut off that country's grain exports, eliminating a major competitor of ours for grain sales in world markets. The lack of competition from Ukrainian farmers helped boost prices for the U.S. grain and meat on international and domestic markets, with a lot of the benefit landing in Iowa. Farm commodity prices have fallen in the past year as producers in South America, Asia, and Europe moved to fill the void left by Ukraine. Another thing that boosted Iowa's economy in 2021 and 2022, but not as much as last year, are now was massive federal spending spurred by the COVID-19 pandemic and for infrastructure, which is everything from streets and highways to water systems, airports, and public buildings like Des Moines' new $140 million federal courthouse. 
Congress and the President approved $1.2 trillion in infrastructure spending in late 2021, and while all that money is not yet spent, most of it is committed. Iowa's reported share of that spending is $3.9 billion, which sounds like a lot, but is less than half of 1% of the total. By comparison, Iowa's population of 3.2 million people is just under 1% of the total U.S. population of about 340 million people. You could argue that Iowa is not getting its fair share of infrastructure spending because none of the state's Republican leadership wanted anything to do with the largely Democrat-sponsored infrastructure bill. Moving on, big economic news for 2023 included inflation worries. The main drivers of inflation were federal spending for COVID-19 relief and infrastructure. In 2021 and 2022, inflation mushroomed to decades-high levels, peaking at 9.1% in June of 2022 before dropping to 6.4% a year ago. As 2023 began, many feared a resurgence of sharply rising prices, but it didn't happen. Instead, inflation fell throughout the year and was just over 3% as the year ended. Driving a decline was food and energy, the two categories that had earlier spurred inflation increases. Both went up sharply beginning in late 2021, and both came down in 2023. That sounds like good news, and it was for much of the country, but less so for Iowa, where economic indicators continued to lag. According to a January 4th news release from the Iowa Department of Revenue, seven of its eight leading economic indicators were below year earlier levels in November. December numbers won't be available until early February, and by then at least one of the indicators, stock prices of publicly traded Iowa companies, should be positive given the year-end run-up in stock markets. But other indicators have been worrisome for much of the past year, including the key farm profit index, which was negative for most of 2023, meaning the cost of seed, fertilizer, and other inputs was higher than the market prices for corn and soybeans. A, a new orders index that tracks Iowa's manufacturer's purchase orders has been declining since mid-2021 and is now nearly as low as it was during the worst of the pandemic. Home building permits have followed a similar pattern since the pandemic, providing additional evidence of a lagging economy. And again, that's a column written by David Elbert, entitled Elbert Files, and he is a columnist for the business record. And another column for the business record, this one is written by Susanna DeBaca, and it's titled On Leadership, and the headline uh, for this week's column is Trends to Watch in 2024, Leaders Predict Continued Disruption. Last fall, as Suzanne DeBacco was finalizing the annual plan and budget for 2024, she remarked to her leadership team once again how much disruption and change has been experienced over the last several years. Even though the worst days of the pandemic are in the rearview mirror, the rate of change shows no sign of stopping. Therefore, it's critical that we as leaders constantly monitor trends that will shape strategies and operations far into the future. In a recent Forbes article, in 2024, the leadership landscape continues to evolve in response to dynamic, global, technological, and societal shifts. Leaders are facing unprecedented challenges and opportunities, prompting the emergence of key trends that are reshaping leadership methodologies and practices. Debaka dug into various trends that leaders are talking about in the year ahead, combing through media articles and consulting firms' research, including Gartner, Gallup, Forbes, Harvard Business Reviews, Fast Company, HR.com, and more. And five trends emerged over and over, even if the themes were described or phrased differently. And those five trends are AI and digital transformation. Second, pursuit of meaningful work. Third, well-being and mental health in the workplace. Fourth, authenticity. And five, continued volatility and disruption. While these trends are important and interrelated, it is clear that the rate and pace of disruption does not appear to be slowing down in 2024. In fact, volatility is likely to speed up. Leaders must face both the strategic and tactical implications of volatility in the political, global, social, and regulatory arenas. With a divisive 2024 election looming, these disruptions could add additional tension to an often already anxious workforce. 
adding continued inflation and concerns about economic growth, international conflict, issues of inequality and societal fragmentation, and leaders will have their hands full. Similarly, while artificial intelligence has received increased attention in past years, the introduction of ChatGBT in 2023 sparked an AI boom. Everyone was experimenting with ChatGPT, and every company leader and team member were grappling with how AI will affect their industry or job. In the media, certainly did, and even had an AI-generated poem at the business record holiday party. But regardless of how you feel about AI, according to Suzanne DeBaca, there will be a need for leaders to adapt this technology at scale and employ it to improve productivity and decision-making. Precisely because things are speeding up. As a leader, you must upskill, think differently, and allocate resources to disrupt your own workforce while, as a Fast Company article states, maintaining morale and employees who wonder how long they'll still be needed. The combination of wondering if you'll be replaced by a bot, continued change, and political divisiveness can take its toll on everyone from leaders to frontline workers. A report from the American Institute of Stress showed that 83% of Americans suffer from work-related stress, costing the economy $77 billion. As such, any leader concerned about engaging employees, improving productivity and retention, and managing costs must put well-being on the agenda for 2024. I asked local leaders about which of these trends they thought were most important for leaders to consider in 2024 and why. Interestingly, three of the five leaders pointed to continued volatility and disruptions the top trend to watch and all underscored the accountability that leaders must have in addressing change. So the first person interviewed was Wade Britt. He's a partner and managing director of Baton Global Trend to watch. And he says artificial intelligence is a human story, not a technological one. As AI reshapes job roles, organizations have the chance to harness its potential. This is not a transformation that organizations can afford to let happen to them. We can equip our workforce to thrive in the evolving landscape through robust learning and development initiatives. Together, we can protect our workforce, enabling them to adapt, expand markets, and succeed. Next person was Abby Kroll, a tax partner and department head of ID Bay. And she says a trend to watch will be wellness. Careers can be draining on individuals. And as a CPA going into our busiest season of the year, our staff's well-being is top of mind and becomes the is top of mind is mental health. It's become the norm for most businesses, but going above and beyond this area will be key to attract and retain top talent. Our firm has focused on mental health through a wellness program that provides fitness and other benefits to the employees choosing, a variety of philanthropic opportunities, and numerous spontaneous interactions to make sure we're recognizing employee needs. Next up, Joseph Jones. He's the uh, member of the Windsor Heights City Council. His prediction is that the polarization and uncivil discourse in our politics will cause more rational people to leave the sideline and engage civically in 2024. Historically, our democratic process has relied on community members and elected officials to advocate for issues affecting the greater community. Next up is Joe Murphy, president of the Iowa Business Council, and he thinks the trend to watch will be continued volatility and disruption. We live in increasingly volatile times. Leaders in every industry need to accept this reality and enter the arena clear-eyed and prepared to do this, collect information and solicit debate with your team on how to approach disruptive trends and seek different opinions and challenge your own assumptions. If the newfound reality calls for action, communicate your rationale clearly while pursuing partnerships with outside organizations to prevent isolation. Most importantly, prioritize action over words. A press release doesn't mean anything if your organization isn't actively working toward a solution. And finally, Hayano Carrerian, he's the Chief Operations Officer for Des Moines, West Des Moines, and Regional Chief Medical Officer at Mercy One Medical Center. And he, too, thinks continued volatility and disruption will be one of the trends in 2024. The pandemic and economic volatility of recent years highlighted shortcomings and created 
a significant labor shortage in healthcare. While these challenges have prompted changes that will continue to disrupt healthcare for the foreseeable future, they have also led to new innovations that help individuals better manage their health and or increase efficiencies for healthcare staff. As we adopt new technology, we must measure its effectiveness by how much it will decrease the burden on physicians and healthcare staff so they can focus on patient care and better health outcomes. And again, this was a column written by Susanna DeBaca of Business Record. In our final article from the June 26th edition of Business Record, the West Des Moines Chamber of Commerce has opened registration for the fourth annual Athene Black and Brown Business Summit. The conference is set for Thursday, April 18th, and Friday, April 19th, and will support minority-owned businesses with discussions, speakers, workshops, and networking events led by 75 panelists from diverse backgrounds. The event also includes a pitch competition in which contestants have won more than 100,000 in the past three years, and people can register for the event by uh, looking at the West Des Moines Chamber web site. You've been listening to the business record on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind and print and handicapped. I'm Pat Steele. Thank you for sharing your time with IRIS.